You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 31st of October 2022 on Monocle 24. The Globalist, in association with UBS. This is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. On the show ahead... Brazilians celebrate as Lula wins the election. We'll have more about this remarkable political renaissance. Then to Russia to examine the latest rhetoric from the Kremlin and the situation on the ground. Plus, we'll be in Islamabad, where former leader Imran Khan is marching to the capital to demand early elections. And our Washington correspondent Chris Chermak joins us with an update on the midterms. Friday was an ugly day in American politics with the kind of news that you can only hope will not become too commonplace in the United States, with the midterm congressional elections just over a week away. We'll flick through the international front pages, get the latest environment news, and find out why the fashion world is looking towards the Middle East. That's all ahead here on The Globalist, live from London. First, a look at what else is happening in the news. At least 132 people have been killed after a century-old cable suspension bridge collapsed into a river in the western Indian state of Gujarat. South Korea's Prime Minister has promised a thorough investigation into the Halloween crush over the weekend that killed more than 150 people in Seoul. And the United States and South Korea have launched one of their largest joint military air drills today. Do stay tuned to Monocle 24 throughout the day for more on those stories. But first, Brazil has a new president. In what's widely seen as a return to democracy, Luiz Ignacio Lula da Silva has beaten the right-wing incumbent Jair Bolsonaro and will now begin an historic third term in January, capping a remarkable political comeback. Well, Fernando Augusto Pacheco is Monocle's senior correspondent. Uh, Fernando, very, very unusual to see you here at this time of the morning. (laughs) And we really appreciate you coming in, particularly as you've been up most of the night monitoring these results. You're a Brazilian, as we know. You've covered every step of this election. How do you feel about the results? Well, all I can say that it was quite stressful for, uh, you know, to cover this election overall. And even uh, with the result, I mean, it's very narrow. Uh, you know, usually Brazilian elections are fairly, you know, narrow. I'm not saying that people usually win on a landslide, but we just had here a 1.8% difference between both candidates. Uh, Lula with 50.9% and Bolsonaro 49.9%. Point one, which for you know continental country like Brazil, this is quite small, the narrowest since 2014, uh, where the difference was about three points, um, I believe. So yes, it was a very confident victory for Lula, but of course we should never underestimate the power of Bolsonaro. I mean, literally half, almost half of the country voted for him as well, and he will still be around. I mean, literally as well in the Congress, in the Senate, a lot of governors that were re-elected or elected. Uh, came from his kind of uh, base as well. But, you know, it's it's Lula's night. I mean, mm. it is remarkable. Amanda was literally in prison in 2018 and he couldn't compete for president back then. Well, let's just look at Bolsonaro for a minute because there were lots of reports before the election that he would attempt to contest the results. Has he done anything like that? Very weird. Complete silence in social media. He didn't say anything. He didn't concede uh, defeat yet. Neither he nor his sons. You know, he's got three sons there in the world of politics. I mean, some of Bolsonaro's supporters, including Sergio Moro, the former justice minister and now senator, he's saying, well, this is democracy. Let's move on. So we see some figures from the Bolsonaro camp that are already kind of conceding, saying, you know what, we'll be, we're, do, we're going to do strong opposition against Lula. And very interestingly, Georgina, a lot of the world leaders, uh, including in this case, Joe Biden, he phoned Lula immediately. Uh, Macron, many leaders around the world, they were very swift uh, to congratulate Lula. I think there was a way to kind of avoid mm-hmm. uh, that Bolsonaro would try to do something. And, you know, it's he's an unpredictable man. Uh, I can't say for sure what he's going to do. Uh, but for now, things are, you know, very quiet. And I think, you know, if the international community, you know, 
you know, keep an eye on Brazil. And now I think this would definitely help. But let's see later tonight, later today what Bolsonaro will say. I mean, there were reports of voter suppression. What can you tell us about that? Yes, uh, which is a big story, terrible story. So basically, it's the road police in Brazil. The chief of the road uh, police is very much a strong Bolsonaro supporter. And apparently in some cities, well, I can say about 500 or so cities, especially cities where Lula did very well in the first round, there were some suspicious operations on the road. So basically, the police would stop buses in the middle of the road saying there was a technical problem with the bus or, or whatever, really. We don't know the facts uh, just yet. So that could cause delay for people to vote. And those people, they, those cities are very poor. Uh, you know, cities, you know, where sometimes people have to move, you know, quite a long distance to go and actually uh, cast uh, their ballot. So I think there'll be an investigation to that. I think this would have become perhaps a bigger story even if Bolsonaro had won, but Mm -hmm. but, but he did lose. But still, this should be investigated. Yeah. So let's let's break down these numbers. How did it pan out state by state? Yeah, well, as I said, you know, confident victory for Lula. uh, But, you know, it was not perhaps as great as some have expected, including the polls, uh, even though the polls were a little bit more correct uh, this time. And it's fascinating to see the division of, of the map. If you if you look at the map, Northeast completely went for Lula in huge numbers. I mean, some states he won with over 70% of the vote. But then you have regions of Brazil, including the agribusiness, center-west and the south you know, a very rich and wealthy region of Brazil, Bolsonaro won in all the states. And the southeast where I come from and is the most populous region, again, Bolsonaro did very well. Uh, But again, one of the reasons uh, for Lula's victory is the state of Minas Gerais, which I've been telling a lot. A lot of people see Minas Gerais, Gerais, which is the second most populous state in Brazil, as the bellwether state of Brazil. So whoever wins there ends up winning the election. And, you know, Lula won, I think, by... 50.05%. It's remarkable. So Minas Gerais continue with uh, this tradition. And even in my state of Sao Paulo, it's an interesting one. Bolsonaro won the state with 55%. But even if you kind of look at the map, uh, for example, I'm from the capital of the state, which is also called Sao Paulo, confusingly enough, uh, Lula won there. So we're seeing what is happening in the United States, where the big urban centers perhaps are moving a little bit more you know, to Lula and to more centre-left parties. But the countryside is huge in Brazil. I mean, it's, it, it, OK, you can win the urban centres, but that's not enough. So I think Lula and his Workers' Party, they need to think how to reach uh, those people from the countryside as well, mm. which definitely didn't go for him this time. Mm. Because, of course, that's one of his stated aims. He says he wants to unite the country. How can he do that? It's going to be difficult. But, you know... He started well. I mean, in his victory speech in Sao Paulo yesterday, you can clearly see that he wants to pacify the country. Look at some of the key words he said. It's time to recuperate the soul of this country. You know, it's time to lower the guns. I'm going to govern for everyone. And he said very clearly, this is not going to be a workers' party government. Uh, Because, you know, Lula was also elected because he he managed to do a grand coalition. Look at his vice president, Geraldo Alckmin. If you're a follower of Brazilian politics, I mean, it was a bit of a surprise. They were rivals, literally. Geraldo Alckmin was from the center-right party, PSDB, in the past. You know, you could never imagine that they would be together in the same ticket, in a way. Uh, so, you know, so far, and of course, in the coming weeks, we might know more news about his ministry. And I expect to see a lot of people from different uh, parties, not necessarily just leftist parties. He might have to move to the right because this was not a shift to the left, Georgina. Of course, a little bit, but this is not, we can't really say that most Brazilians are left now. Mm-hmm. This was just a lot of centrist voters who said, you know what, I can't cast a ballot to Jair Bolsonaro because, you know, he was a disaster in many ways. Uh, and, and those people were not, they, those people were not necessarily Lula voters, in my opinion. Do you think that the corruption scandal that landed Lula in prison, has that gone away? Are there still questions to be answered? I mean, will it impact on his presidency? I don't think you impact. I mean, because he's being, uh, you know, those sentences have been annued, uh, you know, and, and quite a few of them, I believe more than 20, uh, and by the UN as well. So in that sense, I think is pacified. Uh, I think what we should look into it is, of course, some of Bolsonaro, what he did in government, because there's been a lot of suspicions uh, here and there. So we might see this. So there is even... um 
a lot of people are saying that Bolsonaro, there's some some decisions he made they were put into, uh, you know, that nobody could know in a hundred years. I think there was a special uh, law he did. I, I didn't quite understand. So Lula said this would be over. So this would be revealed to the public, mm. including his uh, vaccination, kind of to know if he's being vaccinated or not. So we're definitely going to be here uh, more of that as well. And Fernando, how will this win alter Brazil's standing on the international stage? I think it's been an immediate change as well. I think a lot of world leaders are kind of relieved that they can work with Brazil as well in all sorts of things because Brazil is an important global player. Look at the environment, for example. I mean, Lula did talk about the Amazon. He said that he wants zero deforestation. He says of the Amazon is Brazilian, but I want international cooperation. A completely different speech uh, that, Bo- that Bolsonaro. And, and just look at how swiftly Joe Biden called uh, Lula, all the European leaders, the South American leaders. And Georgina here, of course, I said that Brazil is is not a shift to the left, but we have to look at the five biggest economies in South America and Latin America are, you know, from the left spectrum as well. That's quite relevant. So Lula will have a very good relationship with countries like, you know, Argentina, uh, Chile, and even Mexico as well, which also has kind of a, a, a leftist leader. So mm-hmm. it's going to be international. I think he'll be very welcomed with open arms uh, by the world stage. Uh, and of course, by the US in particular. Absolutely. And, and it's interesting. Some people are even joking. The US trying to help democracy in Brazil because in the past was the opposite. Uh, during the dictatorship, they were actually... Uh, you know, they were kind of supporting our uh, our, our right wing uh, dictatorship, but co- now it's completely different. They're trying to save our democracy in many ways. Fernando, thank you very much indeed. Uh, and that, of course, was our own Fernando Augusto Pacheco uh, live in the studio with us here on the Globalist on Monocle Twenty Four. It is 9.12 in Kiev, that's 7.12 here in London. It's now 250 days since Russia illegally invaded Ukraine in a war the Kremlin thought would be over within a week. As fighting rages on, we look at where Moscow stands now. I'm joined by Jenny Mathers, who's Senior Lecturer in International Politics at Aberystwyth University. Jenny, thanks for joining us today. Now, Russia's announced that it's suspending participation in the Grain Export Agreement in response to the drone attack that the Kremlin claims damaged a minesweeper. It also targeted the flagship of the Russian Black Sea Fleet. Can you tell us more about that? Certainly. Um, So this was a very bold um, attack, presumably by the Ukrainians, although they're being quite cagey about about their responsibility. But it involved um, a whole what's called a swarm of drones, both um, air sort of flying drones and also uh, marine drones, ones that they go by sea. Um, And they launched an attack on the uh, the Black Sea Fleet port at Sevastopol and allegedly, you know, according to reports that we've held, uh, heard, have damaged a number of uh, vessels in, in Russia, Russia's Black Sea Fleet, uh, possibly, you know, sinking some. Uh, we're not quite sure about that. But it was a very bold attack because, of course, any attack on Crimea is particularly sensitive for the Russians, um, but also, you know, important militarily because, you know, these are vessels that can launch uh, missiles that are striking on, you know, Ukrainian territory and are causing a lot of damage. So I think it was a very important um, attack on on the part of the Ukrainians, apparently, um, militarily and psychologically. Uh, and of course, the Russians are not happy about this at all and are taking this as an opportunity both to blame the West for supporting and and um, sort of masterminding these attacks, as well as Ukraine, and to say, well, now we're not going to uh, any longer participate in this um, deal, which we brokered several uh, a while ago to um, export grain uh, from Ukrainian harbours uh, to the rest of the world. And what does that mean for world food security? It's very serious because although there were still, you know, many limitations on the amount of grain that was being exported from Ukraine, nevertheless, this was alleviating some very significant food shortages um, across the world and particularly in the global south. And, you know, this is going to cause a, a lot of hardship. It's going to create a lot of problems. And of course, Putin is hoping that by framing his withdrawal from the grain deal in this way, that he's going to try and, and blame Ukraine and the West and to say to the global south, you know, we 
want to be on your side. We want to be providing you with food. But alas, you know, the Ukrainians in the West are making it impossible. Mm. Now, the Kremlin's also been making accusations about the direct involvement of the West in attacks on its personnel and equipment. Uh, I wonder what the basis is of the claims that the UN and the US have, as, as I quote here, military biological programs in Ukraine. That's right. So the Russia's ambassador to the UN has been very vocal uh, recently, claiming that uh, Russia has evidence that uh, the West, particularly the US, is supporting Ukraine in, in the, the functioning of, of biolabs, which are creating um, sort of dangerous um, uh, sort of pathogens, and that they're also um, militarizing animals. Uh, so migrating birds, bats, even mosquitoes, and injecting them with these pathogens and sending them off to to attack uh, Russian soldiers. Um, so, you know, the, the US obviously and Ukraine have denied uh, these, these claims, and the UN so far is not uh, investigating them. But, you know, Russia is being very vocal about these uh, claims and really is seeking to um, cast a lot of blame towards Ukraine and the West, create a lot of doubt in the minds of, of the international community and particularly in the global south about what on earth is going on in Ukraine. Um, you know, who is really the bad guy? Who is guilty of meddling in these sort of very dangerous, uh, you know, biological weapons and what might happen next? Because there are laboratories that do exist within Ukraine that are backed by the US. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. And and this really started back in the 1990s in the aftermath of the Cold War, when the US was supporting um, Ukraine, but also supporting Russia in trying to clean up a lot of the, the Soviet programs of, you know, various kinds of biological and chemical weapons. Um, and so, yes, there has been, you know, US funding, yes, there has been cooperation, um, but they're very much aimed at trying to prevent both natural and man-made uh, diseases and, and pathogens from uh, escaping in, in and causing damage. So it's 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 very typical of, of Russian disinformation in that there is a grain of truth in it. If you dig hard enough, you can find it. Um, but then they take the grain of truth and they wildly exaggerate it and and build really fantastical stories on it um, and and create a very alternative way of of seeing the world. Mm. Now, what about these reports that Russia's launched a hybrid war with Britain? wanting to undermine national infrastructure in any way possible. And I mean, this would appear to be borne out by the, the hacking of the former Prime Minister Liz Truss's phone. Is this an alarmist or is there cause for concern? Well, I think what we're seeing is that Russia is using all of the tools at its disposal. And, you know, frankly, Russia has used uh, intelligence uh, practices of a, of a wide variety over many years. It, it really hasn't um, stopped even immediately after the, the end of the Cold War. Russia continued a lot of its programs, um, you know, intelligence programs, uh, including, um, you know, various kinds of, of surveillance and, and disinformation and so on um, in the West. Um, and, you know, it's it's activating these as much as it can. It's, it's using every tool at its disposal. And so I think we shouldn't be surprised um, to hear that, you know, there there are suggestions and, and perhaps there's evidence that, that Russia is actively seeking to, you know, undermine um, Western leaders who are supporting Ukraine, that are they're actively seeking to, um, you know, gain information which they can use against the West. Mm. Putin was carrying out strategic nuclear forces exercises last week, and there have been many mixed signals coming out of Russia over the past few days about the use of, of nuclear weapons. Is there one coherent line of thought on this? Well, I think it's it's clear that Russia is, um, you know, using the rhetoric of nuclear weapons, using the fear that we all have, understandably, that nuclear weapons could be unleashed uh, in this war, and attempting to use it to intimidate both Ukraine, but also its international supporters, especially in the West. And so, we're getting a number of signals being sent in a variety of different ways. So undertaking these kinds of military exercises and demonstrating that, yes, Russia has a usable um, nuclear weapons capability, you know, it, it, it succeeded in, in launching um, uh, from test uh, launches from, you know, submarine launch missiles, air launched missiles, um, land-based ICBMs. So it's showing, yes, we have a, a nuclear triad, which is in good working order, um, and this supports the various forms of rhetoric that we're hearing from 
not only from Putin, but from other senior Russian officials, that Russia has nuclear weapons, it's not afraid to use them. Um, but also, you know, threats are being made, failed threats are being made, not only against Ukraine, but also against the West, saying, you know, the West is supporting uh, Ukraine, and therefore, you know, nuclear strikes against Western targets are not impossible. Um, so all of this is really to um, create a, a, a better image, a stronger image of, of Russia as threatening, as dangerous, um, Russia as a country that we don't want to mess with, uh, and therefore, we're much wiser to back off and to put pressure on Ukraine to negotiate some kind of a of a ceasefire and, and a peace agreement, which Russia, you know, would be willing to 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 cooperate with. Uh, and just finally, before we go, let's have a look at what's happening in the Kherson region, because uh, senior uh, armed forces spokespeople say that the, that Russia is taking preparatory measures to withdraw artillery units from the right bank uh, part, uh, and that they may then be transferred in other directions. So what's happening there? Well, we're getting a lot of mixed uh, messages, really, from what's happening in Kherson. We're hearing about um, evacuation and withdrawal, but we're also hearing about um, sort of reinforcement of, of other troops. And certainly the Ukrainians are telling us that, you know, some of the, the best troops that Russia has, um, and it doesn't have that many of them, but some of the best ones are, are being concentrated in this area, and that they're not likely to give up uh, the control of, of the capital city and, and of the region that they, the control that they have without a strong fight. So, you know, it's it, it's very unclear at the moment, um, but certainly the, the conflict is ongoing in that area, and it's very important, both strategically because of its location, uh, but also psychologically and symbolically, because this was the, one of the first areas that, that Moscow succeeded in capturing um, in the early days after the, the 24th of February. And it's not one that they're going to want to let go easily if they possibly can avoid it. Jenny, thank you very much indeed. That's Jenny Mathers from Aberystwyth University there. Now, still to come on the programme, we'll be in Pakistan. And then... Friday was an ugly day in American politics with the kind of news that you can only hope will not become too commonplace in the United States with the midterm congressional elections just over a week away. We'll have an update on the US midterms from our Washington correspondent. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. The US political establishment was shaken on Friday with a brutal attack on the husband of Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the US House of Representatives. Monocle's Washington correspondent Chris Chermack reports on the reactions of a former president, Barack Obama, once the hope and change candidate who was out on the campaign trail that very same day. Friday was an ugly day in American politics, with the kind of news that you can only hope will not become too commonplace in the United States with the midterm congressional elections just over a week away. Uh, you say you have been briefed by somebody who is familiar with the early stage of this investigation. Share more. I've just been told from a source who was briefed on the attack that the assailant who attacked Paul Pelosi, the Speaker's husband, was in search for the Speaker of the House. That he came into the home shouting, quote, Where is Nancy? Where is Nancy? The news of an attack on the husband of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi in San Francisco reverberated all the way around the country to Atlanta, Georgia, where a former president who used to preach hope and change was taking the stage the very same evening of that attack. And I want to take a moment just to say a prayer for a friend of mine, Mr. Paul Pelosi, who was attacked. Barack Obama was back in campaign mode Friday night, stumping for two Georgia candidates, Raphael Warnock for the Senate and Stacey Abrams for governor. Both are in extremely tight races in these midterm elections, 
But beyond the campaigning, you could tell just how much the news of Pelosi and what it represented about our politics had struck Obama. A politics where, where some in office or who aspired office worked to stir up division, to, to make folks as angry and as afraid of one another for their own advantage. That strain in his speech, in his words, was a far cry from Obama's early days. Like so many others, I first came across Obama in 2004, with his famous speech at the Democratic Party's National Convention that year. There is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is the United States of America. There is not a black America and a white America and Latino America and Asian America. There's the United States of America. Now, whatever side of the political aisle you are on, or you were on at the time, you'd have to concede that that was one of the most defiantly hopeful messages we'd heard from a politician in a long while. And at a time then, too, of brewing divisions in the aftermath of the U.S.-led invasion of Iraq. Barack Obama would, of course, carry that hopeful energy all the way to the White House just four years later. And again, regardless of which party you might belong to, it was one of the most positive elections in American history. Not just Obama, but for the Republican candidate, John McCain. Obama himself reflected on that election when he took to the stage in Atlanta on Friday night. People didn't agree with me on everything, but we could at least talk to each other. And after I won, John McCain, my opponent, graciously conceded, gave me a call. A little while ago, I had the honor of calling Senator Barack Obama to congratulate him, please, to congratulate him on being elected the next president of the country that we both love. Publicly wish me luck for the sake of the country. America today is a world away from the cruel and prideful bigotry of that time. There is no better evidence of this than the election of an African-American to the presidency of the United States. And there was a peaceful transfer of power. That basic foundation of our democracy is being called into question right now. Even if these are changed times, where politics is dangerously combative and presidents do not necessarily accept election results, there is still a lot of love for Obama and what he represents. The importance of what Obama achieved back in 2008 is felt even more deeply here in Atlanta, the birthplace of Martin Luther King Jr. Him and I are the same age. I, I love him. He's an, he's an impeccable human being. This is Sean Harrison, who spoke to me just a few meters away from the burial place of Martin Luther King Jr. and his wife, Coretta Scott King. Does his legacy live on when you look at today and everything that's happening around the U.S.? I think it will. I think that... um. In time, his legacy will, will flower. The whole, the whole historical significance of him. But there is no question that the man that I saw on Friday night was a changed Obama. He was more combative, more aggressive, attacking opponents directly. There was a sort of incredulity to him about what has happened to the Republican Party in particular. It used to be that there were GOP members who championed progress and civil rights and rule of law even when some Democrats, especially down here in the South, did not. That's part of our history. So it has not always been one party or another. But these days, right now, just about every Republican politician seems obsessed with two things. Owning the libs and, and getting Donald Trump's approval. What did I say about booing? <laughs> Obama chastised the crowd repeatedly for booing, almost like he was chiding a badly behaving child, telling them to get out and vote instead. Maybe because in addition to attacking Republicans, there was also some incredulity reserved for the wider public. A frustration, even, that voters did not seem to understand the stakes. I am the hope and change guy. But I also know that things will not be okay on their own. We have to fight for this. Democracy is not self-executing. 
it depends on us. It depends on us as citizens saying this matters. This election matters, Georgia. So this was a call to action. Go out and vote. It's not quite the blindly hopeful message I heard all the way back in 2004, but it does still pack a punch. For Monocle in Atlanta, I'm Chris Chermack. Many thanks to Chris. Now, here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. At least 132 people have been killed after a century-old cable suspension bridge collapsed into a river in the western Indian state of Gujarat. Reports say hundreds of people were on the bridge to perform rituals for a religious festival. The bridge had been reopened just days earlier after repairs. In South Korea, Prime Minister Han Dok-su has promised a thorough investigation into the Halloween crush over the weekend that killed more than 150 people in Seoul. The victims were crushed by a large crowd pushing forward on a narrow street during festivities in the Itaewon area. South Korea's foreign ministry says 26 foreign nationals are among the dead. And the United States and South Korea launched one of their largest joint military air drills today. The operation, called Vigilant Storm, will run until Friday and will feature about 240 warplanes. Pyongyang has condemned the drills as a rehearsal for invasion and proof of hostile policies by Washington and Seoul. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. Now, former Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan and thousands of his supporters are marching to Islamabad from Lahore to try and pressure the government to call snap elections. Aisha Sadiqa is a senior fellow at the Department of War Studies at King's College London and joins me now. Aisha, this goes back to April when Khan was removed from government. Just recap what happened. Well, in April uh, of this year, he was removed through uh, a vote of no confidence in the parliament, which is very legal and very constitutional. But his point was that this was uh, a conspiracy hatched by United States on one hand and his political opposition and certain generals in the army. And what is the march then all about and how much support does he have? Well, he's marching towards Islamabad uh, and to force the government and to force the military, in fact, the army chief, to concede that he is popular and it's a popular support, uh, you know, and, and force the government to agree to hold early elections. Uh, so the general elections, which are supposed to happen next year, instead of waiting for um, like middle of the year or end of the year uh, to announce early dates, his idea is or his thought is that uh, the army chief, which is supposed to be the army chief, the current army chief is supposed to retire on 29th of November of this year and a new one appointed. Now he's saying that the army chief should be appointed by a new government, and, and, and basically what he means here is that his government, uh, and, and because army is the organization in Pakistan which holds power, and he wants to control it. Um, right now, I mean, he is, there are people, and uh, I mean, there's no doubt about it, that he has gained a lot of popularity. I mean, from the point in April, I mean, before April, his popularity was going down. After April, because of uh, his narrative about America, about uh, you know the and 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 also the economy, he has become very popular. Of course, you know if one once you know the country goes to elections, we'll find out how popular, how you know uh, unpopular are others. Uh, but until then, uh, you know this government still has time. Now, a journalist was reportedly crushed to death by a vehicle carrying Khan yesterday. This was a, a tragic accident. Uh, aside from that, has there been much violence surrounding the march? No, there hasn't been violence. Uh, you know, there, there are no reports of any violence. And it is slowly, I mean, they are, you know, every government tries to kind of stop 
uh, its opposition. And so all those tactics that are used are being used. You know, for example, uh, hotels in Islamabad have been told not to give any rooms to, uh, you know, any PTI, any Imran Khan supporters, etc. So, you know, tactics like that are definitely being used. Uh, but there is no violence. And and so finally, I mean, how much of a threat does he pose to the current government and to the security of the country? Could he succeed in this? See, the, the, the two issues here. One is that uh, he has really challenged the current coalition government. I mean, he has become so popular. Uh, his narrative of... America conspiring against him has really caught attention and, and uh, you know, uh, you know pe- people kind of listen to that. So that brings me to the second issue, which is security. I mean, uh, the military in the country and, and uh, many others, the other political parties, they believe that if Khan was allowed to come back to power, one of the things that will become, uh, you know, will we'll get disturbed is Pakistan's relations with the United States, which this government and the military has tried hard uh, to put into place and, and, and improve. Uh, under the last days of Khan, uh, relations with the Biden administration uh, really had, uh, you know, gone down. Uh, they were not good. And they're trying to because for IMF, Pakistan needs America support, American support to get money from the International Monetary Fund, mm. the World Bank, etc. And for other reasons, Pakistan and uh, its generals, they want to balance the relationship between China and the United States. And they believe that Khan is going to disturb, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, that apple cart. Aisha, thank you very much indeed. That's Aisha Sadika from the Department of War Studies at King's College London. in Seoul, 8.37 in Zurich, and we'll continue now with today's newspapers. Joining me in the studio is Latika Burke, who's a journalist with the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. Good morning to you, Latika. Good morning, Georgina. Uh, Now, the migrant crisis here in the UK is always at front and centre of the news, but it has suddenly uh, reignited. Tell us about the headlines around this. Yes, this really does threaten to engulf the government, particularly Rishi Sunak trying to get some clear air and speak to the public with a fresh start uh, not looking likely because the legacy of this issue, which the government has failed to resolve, uh, is absolutely front and centre following a huge surge of boats over the weekend, uh, mostly with Albanian nationals coming via France. And this has completely overwhelmed what little infrastructure the government has built to deal with this surge. Now, as of the weekend, the UK has now experienced uh, more than almost double, actually, um, the amount of migrants that crossed in 2021. So on the weekend, nearly 2,000 migrants came. And that takes us to more than 40,000 for the year. Now, there's a detention centre in, a processing centre in Kent that has been completely overwhelmed. It's meant to house 1,600 people and it's now housing 4,000. So conditions inside these centres are just horrific. And we had an incident at a separate processing centre near Dover uh, of uh, a man with mental health issues uh, throwing petrol bomb at it and then later taking his own life. So this is very, very serious. And don't forget, this was one of the reasons that many Conservative MPs actually turned their backs on Boris Johnson for a failure to get a grip on this crisis. And today, MPs are saying they want to call a question in the Commons and and call on Suella Braverman, the new Home Secretary, well, the new old uh, Home Secretary, to come in and answer questions about this and set out how the government is going to get a grip on it. 
Obviously, the government can't get a grip on it without international relationships here. Um, They've been very rocky with France over time, but Rishi Sunak has hoped to set a better tone with Emmanuel Macron. But also, they will have to, uh, I think, looking at Australia's experience on this, eventually negotiate some kind of migrant swap back with Albania so that if anyone comes from Albania via these routes and they're not found to be asylum seekers but migrants, the UK government can actually send them back uh, without having to have, you know, their, their solution, um, like the Rwanda plan held up in the, in the European court. Mm, and of course, uh, Suella Braverman herself coming under huge personal attack, many, many calls for her to resign for her mishandling of this. Yeah, and she's MIA. I mean, have you seen anything from Suella Braverman since she became the Home Secretary again? Because of course, the week prior, she had sent uh, secure documents to an MP from her personal email account which really shouldn't have been done, accidentally also CC'd in someone else in error and then had to resign under Liz Truss. Now, of course, this was the day that the government completely blew up. And so she's back in, which, of course, the Labor opposition says is just the result of the grubby deal that Rishi Sunak had to do with the right wing of the party to get power. So none of this bodes well, one, for the policy outcome, two, for the people whose lives are in complete limbo, and three, for the communities who are bearing the brunt of this complete failure to get a grip on this. Uh, Of course, it's one thing to stop the boats um, and try and do that. But failing that, you do also have to have the necessary infrastructure in the country to deal with these surges, and Britain has been found wanting on both. Yeah. Now, I want to say let's have a quick look at the political deadlock in Northern Ireland, but of course there's nothing quick or simple about this situation at all. As the FT front page uh, uh, talks about with this interview with the Irish PM. Yeah, the Taoiseach has given some really interesting comments to the FT today, saying that he believes that the Good Friday Agreement... Uh, particularly the section which calls for power sharing between the unionists and uh, separatist parties uh, in Northern Ireland ever since that agreement was struck, is now out of date and it needs reform. And further, he says, this is actually contributing to polarisation of politics in Northern Ireland because people don't really, he says, identify themselves along these lines anymore. And he says there's been a very big surge in middle parties and other parties. So it's really time to look at whether this system is fit for purpose. And of course, the results show that it's not because... (laughs) Northern Ireland doesn't have a government. What happens under the Good Friday Agreement is that either side can veto the other side from forming a power-sharing executive. And that's happened a lot. In fact, more than uh, more than the majority of time since the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, so it's actually around, uh, sorry, it's around 40% of the time there's actually been no government formed in Northern Ireland. And surely that can't go on. The deadline passed on Friday for uh, the administration to form. Of course, none has formed. So we're expecting a new election on December. But it does seem that if they go to a new election, they're just asking the public to solve a problem that's structural and inherent. And that's actually one that the parties here, being Ireland, the UK and Northern Ireland, need to sit down and work out and thrash out a better model. Absolutely. Finally, uh, a look at uh, South Korea and, of course, this horrible tragedy over the weekend in Seoul. 154 people dead, uh, more than 149 injured, and South Korea is really reeling from the aftermath of this. 26 foreigners are also among the dead. Um, People from all over the world, from Iran, China, Australia, the United States, Sri Lanka, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan. So it's going to be absolutely horrific for the families of of those foreigners, um, one dealing with, with obviously a tragic and unexpected death of their loved ones, and, and most people were young here in this crowd, but also overseas. Now, the South Korean government has announced that it's going to pay 15 million won uh, for each deceased person's funeral expenses. That's around £9,000. So huge bill here as the government comes under question for just how this terrible crowd control was allowed to happen um, and for so long that people could die in this horrific, horrific manner. Yeah, uh, Latika, thank you very much indeed. That's Latika Burke there. And this is The Globalist. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. 
over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. Well, it's time now to talk climate with Chloe Farrand, who's a senior reporter and investigations lead for Climate Home News. Chloe, many thanks for joining us. Uh, good news from Brazil, as we've been hearing throughout the programme. Lula is now in charge. What does this mean for the climate? Well, it's actually hard to overplay how significant uh, Lula's victory is uh, for the climate and for the Amazon, the Amazon rainforest, which is the world's largest tropical rainforest and and, and should be and has been a major carbon sink. Uh, that means that it, it has the potential to absorb a lot more carbon dioxide from the atmosphere than, than it emits. And we, we absolutely um, need that uh, to combat climate change. Um, what's happened under uh, Bolsonaro uh, has been absolutely disastrous for the the Amazon uh, deforestation rose every year uh, under his term in office, reaching a 15-year uh, high. You know, he slashed environmental regulation, gutted environmental agencies, encouraged loggers and ranchers to invade the forest and indigenous peoples' uh, land to plunder uh, resources. And, and basically, what that kind of ex exacerbated and accelerated um, is a trend by which the Amazon, for the first time, has been emitting more carbon than it absorbed. Absorbing. Um, and now that's largely because of, of, of fires, um, because fires are being used to clear land for beef or soil production, um, which has been exacerbated under Bolsonaro's uh, administration. And so it's absolutely crucial that we reverse this trend. And, and Lula offers, um, you know, a bit of a glimpse of hope that um, this might actually um, happen in his uh, victory speech. He's vowed to achieve zero deforestation um, and actually deforestation um, fell sharply when Lula was in office 20 years ago, um, from, from uh, 2002 to 2010. Um, so the task ahead is, is really huge. Um, you know, Lula needs to undo basically four years of uh, Bolsonaro um, policies, regulation and attitudes towards the Amazon. There's a, a range of, of uh, legislations and laws that are awaiting Congress approval, which he could start by uh, reversing. This is a sort of suit of laws that would further weaken environmental regulation and in indigenous rights. Um, his team has promised that they would increase the country's climate ambition. Um, you know, he said he would stamp out illegal gold mining and logging. And maybe more significant for the rest of the world, but he's also made it very clear in his except in his victory speech um, that he would revive international cooperation to protect the Amazon. Now, this matters because under uh, Bolsonaro, Brazil has had really become the pariah of uh, you know in, in, in environmental and climate spaces. But it's not always been the case. I mean, Brazil hosted. Um, something called the Rio Earth Summit in 1992, which was a, a huge turning point in international efforts to reduce uh, pollution um, and, and greenhouse gas emissions and, and led to the UN process that we, we have today. So Brazil has played this role before of being a consensus builder um, you know, with other countries in the environmental uh, space. And Lula really has the ability um, to, to restore Brazil's role um, you know, as, as an environmental um, leader. Mm. Well, of course, UN climate talks start in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt on Sunday. Uh, and in the last few days, there's been a flurry of major reports looking at the state of the climate before this happens. And it's not great news. No, it's not. And, and if anything, it does really emphasise the importance of this of this election in Brazil. Um, but as you say, there's been this um, absolutely uh, flurry of reports, um, mostly from the UN, which basically shows uh, that uh, we are, you know, the progress has been achieved in cutting emissions is woefully inadequate. Um, and the world just isn't on track to meet its collective climate goals. So under current policies, um, you know, we would lead to around 2.8 degrees of warming by the end of the century, um, which is, you know, really, really far, uh, far cry from uh, countries' commitments to limit global heating to well below two degrees and strive for 1.5 degrees. Those were the goals that were agreed in, in the Paris Agreement in 2015. Um, 
so countries have got these 2030 uh, pledges to cut pollution and to cut greenhouse gas emissions that would uh, you know reduce uh, the temperature by the end of the century to 2.6 to 2.4 um, degree rise um, you know but, but we're still really really far away um, from that 1.5 degree target on which most of the world's small island state survival really depends mm. um, and and what, what's been striking with these reports is that the UN is basically saying um, that there is currently, the governments are currently taking no steps to putting the world on a path to achieving that 1.5 degree target. And this is despite scientists um, and, and, and experts having laid out actually a path um, in, in some of their reports uh, for us to achieve that 1.5 degree target. Mm. And I mean, the, the, the UN Secretary General could not be more clear. He said, unless there is an immediate overhaul of production and economy, humanity won't survive. I mean, this is a huge message. And of course, one that's going to come up at, at COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh. What can this latest COP achieve? Well, I have to say that there's a bit of um, expectation management to be uh, to be done here. Um, you know, the, the, the UN uh, climate process hasn't really uh, delivered leaps and bounds, as most of your listeners um, might know. You know, we, we're hearing these messages every year that, uh, you know, the world is not on track, we're not doing enough, we're not going fast enough, and scientists warning are, are becoming more acute, acu- you know, acute, and the UN um, and, and Secretary General Antonio Guterres is, is really coming at the end of, of the world words and adjective to describe how um, rapid the transformation is needed. Um, and basically, in, in, in Sharm el-Sheikh, um, you know, no great breakthroughs are expected. The UN diplomatic process is delivering incremental change um, and faster transformation are really being driven by what's happening in the real economy. Um, and I'm saying this because actually the, the UN process is on a, is on a cyclical cycle. Uh, and, and this year, no real big decisions are expected. However, having said that, uh, COP27 needs to be a really key political moment to put climate action back at the top of the international agenda. Um, You know, we've seen some countries backsliding on their climate commitments uh, since the fallout of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, If anything, this is really the moment for uh, every country to, to come back and say this is has to be the top priority. What can be done um, is that this commitment to the energy transition needs to be reaffirmed. If anything, the energy crisis shows the importance of building resilience in global energy system. You know, unlike gas, every country has access to renewable energy. No one can stop the sun from shining or the wind from blowing. And countries' com- uh, current uh, commitments are not ambitious enough and they're not, um, you know, to, to get us where we need to be. But starting to implement these uh, would actually uh, start uh, helping to put these credible policies uh, in place to, to, to deliver on these targets and could help spur more ambition. And that's what this conference is all about. You know, it's about implementation. It's about governments providing clear signals that they are turning their words into action to transition um, from uh, dirty, from polluting uh, to clean energy. Um, but as I say, you know, there is is some expectation management to be done. Um, we're not expecting breakthroughs, um, but this is a process that needs to that needs to take place. Chloe, thank you very much indeed. That's Chloe Farrand, and this is the Globalist on Monocle Twenty Four. Finally on today's programme, the fashion world is increasingly paying attention to what's happening in the Middle East, while countries like Qatar and Saudi Arabia are working hard to boost their industries. Well, Natalie Teodosi, who is Monocle's fashion editor, joins me now, looking radiant as she would in that job so early in the morning. Thank you for, for coming in, Natalie. Thank you, Georgina. Let's have a look at Doha first. That's making a lot of headlines. Why is that? 
So last week there was a whole week full of events in Doha, starting with Fashion Trust Arabia, which is um, a platform that started in 2018 and has just grown in strength uh, over the years, supporting local designers from across the Middle East and North Africa regions. And uh, I think this this year's events really reached a peak and showed the potential of these designers. Uh, the judging committee for the competition uh, included a lot of big international names that now put Doha and the Fashion Trust Arabia event in their calendar in the same way they would uh, Paris Fashion Week or Milan Fashion Week. So it, it shows a real appetite to discover the design talent in in this region. And also the designers have really been delivering with really unique designs and they really make an effort to translate their heritage into the clothing and to work with local artisans and create jobs and preserve the craft across the regions. We saw everything from Syrian embroidery to um, designers working with craftsmen along all around Mount Lebanon. So there's a really fresh perspective and a lot of talent coming from that region. Mm. And also a look back, there's a huge Valentino exhibition. Exactly. So just a, a few days after the Fashion Trust Arabia design competition, Valentino opened um, this uh, big exhibition called Forever Valentino at uh, M7, which is Doha's uh, Design and Innovation Hub. And it's the largest scale exhibition um, paying homage to Valentino Garavani, the founder who's just turning 90 this year. And um, it uh, it shows rare haute couture pieces by the, by the house. It evokes Rome, which was uh, the birthplace of the brand. And... Uh, shows its past and its future but what's really interesting is that uh, an exhibition, a fashion exhibition of that kind of scale is now uh, available for people to visit in uh, in Doha because in the past this kind of uh, exhibitions and uh, were usually reserved for the fashion capitals for mm -hmm. Milan or for Paris uh, so no, it's it's interesting and it shows the appetite and, and the support from um, the local government to create um, the design and, and fashion scenes and to draw people in with, with creativity as well. What about Saudi Arabia? What's catching the fashion world's attention there? So it has just been announced that uh, later in November, November 17th, um, Saudi Arabia will host the Fashion Futures um, uh, exhibi ex exhibition. It's uh, going to be a series of panel talks uh, from international and local uh, industry professionals. They will showcase again local designers because there's there's in, in Saudi just like in Doha a lot of uh, willingness to support local creatives and uh, the Future Fabrics Expo which is one of the world's largest um, platforms for sourcing sustainable fabrics will be held at the same time in, in Riyadh so again um, it will draw a lot of the international fashion community to Riyadh and um, it's part of big efforts by the fashion Commission, uh, which is under the Ministry of Culture there, to basically create a fashion industry and uh, also create jobs for the new generation. It's, it's a country that apparently 70% is under 30, so there is a lot of appetite to, to keep them there and to create new jobs and new industries for, for these people. Mm. And Natalie, very quickly, uh, if I can just ask you to tell us what luxury brands, established luxury brands, are paying more attention to the Middle East. Yeah, so there are a lot of young talents and a lot of local talents in the Middle East, but it's also, of course, a market where the established luxury names have always uh, paid attention to, and I think the influence is going to be even bigger. Uh, this week, uh, Xenia, which um, had recently announced really strong financial results, said that a lot of that growth was coming from the Middle East. The CEO, Gildo Zenia, called the, said that the Middle East is a new China uh, and um, they, they're going to have an aggressive five-year strategy to keep opening more stores and targeting those customers.
Thank you very much. Uh, that was our fashion editor, uh, Natalie Teodosi. Uh, and that's all for today's programme. Thanks to our producers, Marcus Hippie and Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. Our researchers, Lillian Fawcett and Emily Sands, and our studio manager, Adam Heaton. After the headlines, there's more music on the way, and the briefing is live at midday in London. And The Globalist will return at the same time tomorrow. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thanks for listening. With our daily digital bulletins, films, books, newspapers, magazines and radio service, we're your complete media partner around the world, around the clock. Stay with us. More great programming up next. Monocle, keep an eye and an ear on the world. It's 1700 in Seoul, 9am in Madrid, 8am here in London and 4am in New York. You're listening to Monocle 24. Hello from Studio One at Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin and this is Monocle 24. It's Halloween. We just heard The Globalist uh, and if you missed it, don't worry, you can listen back on our website or wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up soon, we're going to join Marcus Hippie for the latest edition of The Menu. And after that, we're going to play you part one of our historical series on the Foreign Desk. So this time, we travel back in time to 1957 to unpack the Sputnik crisis. What did this new satellite for shadow and how did the Soviet Union do it? Well, Andrew Muller speaks to Henry Reese Sheridan, Tom Nichols, Mark Galliotti and Linda Dawson with the information that would have been available to them back in 1957. Uh, later on, we're going to pay a visit to Cologne uh, and uh, go to the company Orgatech. It's the world's largest office furniture fair on Monocle on Design. First, though, here are the headlines. World leaders have congratulated Luis Ignacio Lula da Silva for his victory in Brazil's presidential election. With 50.9% of the votes, Lula defeated incumbent Jair Bolsonaro in a race that...